Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. Today, I have a very special guest, Lenny Goodings, who began working at Virago in the late 1970s and rose through its ranks, becoming publishing director, then publisher and editorial director. Today, as Virago chair, a post that she's held since 2017, Lenny's still editing and commissioning authors, some of whom you'll have heard or will hear on this podcast. But she's not just here because of her long history with the company. Lenny's also the author of A Bite of the Apple, A Life with Books, Writers and Virago. This book is part memoir, part history of Virago and part thoughts on over 40 years of feminist publishing. And it was published earlier this year by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Lenny. It's such an honour to have you here on our shelf. Oh, thank you, Lucy. Thank you very much. A Bite of the Apple is full of the most wonderful stories about many of the incredible Virago authors that you've worked with over the years, from Maya Angelou to Margaret Atwood to Rosamund Lehman, to name just a few of them. Um, And I realised that it would be very unfair to ask you to pick a favourite, but I was wondering whether you could tell us about one particular book or author or an occasion that stands out in your memory, just to whet our appetites to begin with. It's true. Once you've published as many authors as I have, it's it's a bit like um, having lots of babies, lots of children. You know, you, there's no way you're going to choose the favourite. Um, I suppose one of the most eye-opening authors I ever published uh, or worked with is Maya Angelou. And it's interesting to be thinking of her right now with Black Lives Matter, because um, I, I feel so sad that she's not here to comment and um, to sort of guide us, really. And I think reading I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings was was utterly eye-opening to me, just eye-opening. She t- she grew up in a time of America with, with Jim Crow, where Jim Crow was the rule and, you know, where um, there was a great segregation. She talked about having wanting to go to the dentist and the dentist saying, a white dentist saying, I'd rather put my hand inside a, the, a wild dog's mouth. Um, but she also wrote hugely about joy and about the how books enlighten us, how songs and um, you know she had huge appetite for life, and she had she said, "I'm going to go through life with some compassion, some um, realization of what's going on, and some style." And that was all those things really fed into um, an eye-opening 
time for me mm. with her. In the book, you explain that that you picked that book up to you know, to publish it, whereas other people in the UK had turned it down, kind of, you know, which is seems astonishing to us today, obviously. But how did that feel for you working on it at the time? Yeah, that's true. It was first published in the States in 1969. James Baldwin was a person who was very much behind. He, he knew her and thought she would tell great stories. And so he encouraged Random House to go and, and talk to her about writing a autobiography. And in the end, she wrote seven volumes of autobiography. <laughs> she had a lot, a lot of a good story to tell. Um, but so that was published in the States in 1969. And then in, ni- in the early 80s, Ursula Owen, who was our editorial director, read about the book and then and got a hold of a copy and thought, yes, um, this is an amazing story. Of course, we should publish this. And Maya told us later that um, she knew it had been sent to a lot of British publishers in the 60s, uh, early 70s, and everyone had said, nobody in this country is interested in the story of a young black girl growing up in America. So she loved us and she called us her English publishers. And she, um, she felt that we were this sort of, you know, band of lasses who were, who were really strong and brave. And she used to always uh, uh, talk about having a loyalty, deep loyalty, and, and hold, holding someone's back. And that's what she felt about us. And I, one, one of the first times she came into the office, six foot tall. Um, yep, six foot tall and <laughs> a big woman, too, and not afraid to be big and sexy. That was the great thing about her sort of presence, too. And uh, she, I remember she recited Phenomenal Woman, which is one of her most famous poems. Two wow. famous poems, I would say, and Still I Rise, which a lot of people are, are reciting now, but also a phenomenal woman. She recited that for us. and We were her phenomenal women. And um, that was pretty exciting, I have to say. That's a wonderful memory to have. Um, amazing. I want to jump into our first question here on the podcast. I think from that, um, being a publisher at Virago, you've obviously had your fair share of books that have probably made you think about feminism in new and different ways over the years. But is there one that you can pick um, as standing out from the rest? Well, I was thinking about this question and thinking, actually, it's two writers that would that made me think differently about feminism, I would say, rather than any particular books. But I go back to myself as a young woman, and it was in the early 80s, and we put on a feminist book fair, 1984. I write about this in the book. And it was 1984, and we decided, a group of us decided to put on a, a book fair. And it was fantastic. We find we got every publisher involved. We got all sorts of bookshops. And we put uh, fair together, and nobody had done things like that. There had there were radical book fairs in those days in Camden Town Hall, but nobody had put together a feminist book fair. And so we we got it. A, a gang of us got together. We had a bit of um, GLA money, um, but mostly it was just energy and enthusiasm and passion. And we put it on in the Jubilee Hall in Covent Garden. And when on the morning of, the, of the, the opening of the fair, there were women in wheelchairs at the bottom of the stairs picketing us, saying they couldn't get up the stairs. So we hadn't thought of disabled access. Mm. And one of our most um, important writers, Virago writer at that time too, was Adrian Rich. And she suffered from rheumatoid arthritis. She had to be carried up those stairs. And I remember the humiliation of that. And that, so that opened my eyes to, so, uh, to, to what we would now call intersectionality, actually. You know? So we were totally focused on feminism, forgetting about 
feminists with disabilities, from getting people with disabilities. And the other one is on the opening of the event, Audrey Lord came to this. We had a big party, big um, celebration of a party. And she stopped the celebrations and said, where are your black women? Why do you wow. not have more black women? We had had a lot of um, American black women come to the fair as guests, like my Angelou, Audrey Lord. Um, but we had ve- we didn't have very many black women on the committee who had made up the fair. And so that, as I say, that we would call that intersectionality. But those two women, Adrian Rich, in, you know, insisting on yeah, that women with disabilities are treated the same. Mm. And Audre Lorde insisting on the black voice had to come into white feminism. And they were very, both of those were very eye-opening, very hard. You know, I mean, one of the things I've been, I've been quite interested in watching right now with Black Lives Matter is the number of white people who are having their, you know, their eyes, the scales are falling from their eyes and are kind of telling us all about that. And that's, I feel awkward about that, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, obviously we white people have to have a moment of, of realization. There's no doubt about that. But I feel like that should be more private reflection and that our voices are not the things that should be out there right now. It's not white people, you know, finally waking up that should take up so much space. Um, Anyway, but I do understand why you do that, because uh, it was very um, challenging, for sure, to try and have to take that on the chin, reorganize certain things about the fair. Um, But. And I didn't feel grateful at the time, to be honest, because I felt humiliated, but I do feel grateful. Mm. Well, I was going to ask a little bit in line with that, that presumably because you've published so many different um, sort of feminist tracks, books by feminists over the years, you must have had your um, own sort of thoughts on feminism challenged on quite a few occasions or made to uh, look beyond your boundaries, obviously, like on these occasions. Yeah, I think as that is the one of the great challenges, I think, as an editor, um, is that you have to very much understand where your boundaries lie. You know, you because every editor commissions from their own heart in, in many ways, actually. When a manuscript arrives on the desk, and if it speaks to you, you feel, oh, yes, that, if it speaks to me, it'll f- speak to other people. But if, you have to have a heightened consciousness of who you are and what you know. So, you know, I am a white Canadian woman in my 60s. That's my, and and I've lived here. (laughs) So, but, you know, those are the things I know. Um, And I have to be conscious of the fact that I, you know, that's my, books are obviously going to take me further than that and have always constantly. But, you know, you do have to recognize as an editor, your first base is yourself and then push yourself beyond that, actually. Hmm. I suppose on that point, then, on question two, we like to ask about a recent article or a podcast that has made you think. Um, and obviously, books are doing that for you all the time. But are there other other ways in which you find sort of information and one in particular that you can talk about? Well, I have two. <laughs> Is that Brilliant. okay? Number two. Okay. Well, I've been thinking a lot of, um, I, I think... Obviously, I think a lot about writing, but writing my own book made me even think even more about the precision of what I love what Shirley Hazard, who we published, who's one of my heroes, actually. Shirley Hazard has this wonderful phrase called the phenomenon of the accurate word. And that is what I, I really love. You know, the English language is very rich and 
when you write, you can be very, very precise with certain things. So the, the, the phenomena of the accurate word, I discovered two things just recently, trying to deal with um, both the lockdown and um, understanding Black Lives Matter. And interesting, the one thing, that, of course, that unites the two is breath, isn't it? Um, but the, the article that I was really quite bold over came from somebody in, um, in publishing sent to me. It's, it's called That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. And it's by Scott Bernato. And it was, it's published by the Harvard Business Review, something I don't generally look at, to be frank. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this article came. And what I liked about it was because it was right at the beginning of the lockdown. And I loved, I liked the fact that, you know, if certain people obviously have lockdown in different ways, my lockdown is not tragic. I'm in a nice home and I have, I have a job still. And so I'm very conscious. I was very conscious of that right at the beginning, but I felt dis really, Ooh, really dis distressed actually on some levels, obviously same as everybody. And this one, that phrase, this, that discomfort you're feeling is grief. And I, what I really warmed to was the precision of the word discomfort. You know, mm. it, it tells you that it's not tragic. Um, in my case, and in lots of people's cases, not tragic, but it is very disrupting. And we and the grief was the loss of normalcy, the economic toil, the loss of connection. Anyway, so I liked that. I thought that I felt that really spoke to me. The other one is um, Toni Morrison's book, um, Mouth Full of Blood, which is her collection of essays. And she has a really wonderful essay called Home. And again, it's the precision of the language. So she, which makes me now think, and I'm, I'm watching the streets in America and here, um, at no other period have we witnessed such a myriad of aggression against people designated as not us. Now, as you have seen over the last two years, the central political question was, who or what is an American? And I thought that was really, again, very illuminating for me in an essay called Home. Mm. Were you coming back to that after having read it before as well? Yes, I had, the, I had the very great luck of being on a platform to talk about Toni Morrison after she died last year at the Edinburgh Book Festival. So I, I got the book then, Mouthful of Blood, and then it's made me go back, yes. Mm. And I suppose I think there's something so odd about this time, you know, in lockdown, um, the idea that we are so separate from one another, but yet we are, I think, all of us in different ways drawing such um, sort of comfort and solace from writing that speaks to us and, and makes us feel part of a kind of of a community again, right? Like, the, like that essay you mentioned at the beginning, those sorts of things, I think, are more important now than ever before in some strange way. I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the beauty of writing, isn't it, is that, first of all, the beauty of reading and writing is that it's a very um, contemplative, it can be a very contemplative, solitary experience. Um, it obviously, when we love something, we share it to, with each other, but it initially speaks just to you. And I think that is the great power of writing. And it gives you the time, too, doesn't it, to to sit with a sentence like that or mm or to sit with a thought like that. You know, we need, Shirley Hazard has a collection of essays called um, We Need Time to Work Out What We Think. And, um, you know, I think that's it, actually. I, I think, I, obviously, we're in a very speedy world, but it's now been screeched to a halt. But there are so many good things coming out of the fact that we've had to stop and listen. As an editor, are you... Um 
cautious or excited about the types of books that might be might be coming out of this period of lockdown and sort of slowness and contemplation? Uh, I suppose both in some ways, because I, <laughs> I feel <laughs> there's always a sort of bandwagony aspect to publishing, isn't it? I mean, publishing, yes. you know, it's it's, you know, what we're here as publishers, we're here to entertain, to educate and to um, tell stories and have fun, to, you know, make people think hard. You know, I mean, there's no one definition of what is publishing or what is a book even. Um but the one side of publishing that always, you know, amuses me, I would say more than uh, distresses me, is how a new a fad, you know, we're, we're as faddish as the next one. So I'm a little worried about the number of lockdown diaries that may well slide across the desk. <laughs> Well, there's so many there's a lot of talk isn't there on the um, internet you know now is the right time to write your novel and uh, that I see has has quite you know a lot of people up in arms and others thinking oh yes that is the perfect time so I'm I'm intrigued to see what comes out of it I I suppose as everything there'll be some great art and there'll be some mediocre art as well <laughs> I think that's right I think there is I mean I do think you're absolutely right there'll be some things that are amazing and people will have had time to really think and and also you know, I mean, not everything that you write has to be published anyway, to be honest. I think writing is a great, um, you know, I, I love A.S. Byatt who says, I write in order to work out what I think. And, you know, that's valuable for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're going to try and put a book together or not. But, you know, to yeah. put down your thoughts really does order your, your brain in a way and um, gives you, you know, I, I think one of the, the things I have really, really realized by being a publisher and then doing my own book too now is that we all need a narrative. You know, the, I think it's the definition of sanity, actually, in a way, is that if a narrative, an understanding in the, of a narrative of your own life, and I don't mean, you know, I was born here and blah, 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 but, you know, how you've negotiated life. You know, am I a person who's um, lucky or unlucky or, um, you know, who's who's impetuous or... Um, who finds wonderful things in small, uh, small places? You know, you. I think if you understand your own narrative, it does really help. It helps you negotiate the world. I think it also makes helps you make sense of your existence as well, and you know that you can put. Um... I mean, no life is as perfect as a mm. as a narrative that's perhaps written down in a novel. But if one imposes a certain idea of narrative on one's life, I think it does give you a sense of sort of coherence and togetherness that can be quite helpful. I totally agree with you. And that was the one thing I discovered by doing my own book is that actually I had to impose a narrative because, of course, memoir is just is not, you know, in some ways it is like fiction, isn't it? It has to have an arc of a story. It has to have certain characters who play larger roles. So you have to make a, a shape. And I found the same thing, actually. There were certain things that I had to unpack, certain painful things I had to sort of you know, un, like I felt them like a knot inside me, and but writing about them kind of opened them up. Actually, made me understand certain things more better than I had the first time. Um, and also, I worked out, you know, what gives me great pleasure too. So, yes, I totally agree with you. Mm. Talking a little bit about lockdown and um, in terms of entertainment, I think at the moment I've noticed that a lot of people, and myself included, actually, I find that I'm going back to um, familiar books. Uh, that I've already read in the past that I know are going to be sort of comfort reading at this point um, or films or TV series that I, I sort of want to revisit over this time. And I think there's a there's definitely an idea of comfort going on there. Are you doing something similar? I mean, is there a film or a song or a TV series that you're 
particularly enjoying at the moment? Is it something new or is it something old? I think you're right. I have gone back a lot. And I've also been rereading, you know, people like Marilyn Robinson, for example, mm. because I, I feel like I want the nourishment that you get from wise thinkers like her. But the television program I watched recently that I just love was on Ella Fitzgerald. It was a BBC documentary and it was called Just One of These Things. One of one of just one of those things, actually. And the reason I I mean, I my parents loved Ella Fitzgerald, so it was in my childhood her her voice um and I could and also I try to play jazz myself so you know there's all sorts of reasons that I really I'm drawn to her what did you play I I try I have been learning forever and ever the saxophone all the uh, sax anyway so that's so I got a lot of jazz in my mind and um but what I was particularly taken with with this aside from the unbelievable voice she was on the road for 60 years, amazingly, because she, as a very young girl, she put it, she made herself audition and she got, uh, she got to start singing in, in uh, nightclubs. But what I think it, I'm quite interested, and, and she certainly embodied this, is what it takes to be an artist. And, and my, no, I mean, it's not true with everybody, but an awful lot of artists have to give themselves over 100% to something. And Ella Fitzgerald was a really good example of that. I mean, she didn't have much of a, a home life, it seemed to me. She was mainly on stage and mainly on the road and giving over to it. And I was reading recently, um, Leonard Cohen's son was writing about his dad and said the same kind of thing that, in fact, Leonard Cohen himself said he wasn't a very good father because he was he was too busy you know, giving himself to his art often is a more of a male thing than female. But even in Ella Fitzgerald's story, you could just see, you know, it. The cost of the art was family and and possibly friends too. I was wondering if you've seen that with um, any writers that you've worked with over the years. I think we, you know, there was a period, in fact, uh, Tilly Olson really identified this and I lifted it (laughs) from my book, actually made a list of all the women who had written up until the um, early 20th century who didn't have children, you know, Mm. Virginia Woolf, Edith Wharton, Willa Cather, you know, it was really, really remarkable when you see this just, you know, this great volume of, of women who hadn't had children who obviously decided that it didn't fit their lives. I mean, it didn't fit their life as an artist. I don't think we are quite as um, uh, restricted now. I mean, I think, I mean, I think I'm quite interested in courage, the idea of courage around writing that, because of course you have to be courageous enough to think I have something to say to the world. Don't you, you have to have that chutzpah. You have to have that conviction that, you know, you in your little head (laughs) has something that's going to go down on paper and then other people are going to read it. Now that takes a kind of courage, I feel, um, and a drive. And that possibly didn't marry up with marriage and with children in the past, I feel our, the change, our sense of women artists is so changed that I think that possibly isn't quite um, quite the same now. I think women have the courage is what I'm saying. Women have the courage to speak now and believe that they will be heard. That's totally different. But I still do think there's a cost of art because it means you you have to divorce yourself from life, don't you? You have to be up in your attic or wherever. and um, somebody's got to be tending to life. (laughs) (laughs) Courage is a very interesting topic because one of the things that I very much remember from your 
book and has sort of stayed with me ever since, where you talk about um, in your life as a sort of interviewer, you've taken a question from Hilary Mantel, that one about where um, asking uh, the people, the writers that you interview, which writer gave them courage, which is such a wonderful question. And it was one that I really wasn't aware of before, you know, reading it here. And I'm definitely going to steal it myself, I think, in the future as well, if I may. Um, But I suppose I, I sort of, I'm interested in whether there's a particular writer that you felt has given you courage over the years, whether that was to do your own writing to kind of publish this this recent book, or in terms of your career more broadly. So wasn't it interesting that the thing that Hilary Mantel, the writer that Hilary Mantel said gave her courage, you wouldn't you wouldn't have guessed the answer, would you? It was Beryl Bainbridge, because she because she said Belle Bainbridge, you know, had this wild black humor and that just thought, damn it, I could do that too. Or any, you know, anything who would say, I would say someone like Angela Carter in terms of language, in terms of, you know, where you can take language in terms of an appreciation of the magic. Um, Sarah Waters in terms of the importance of storytelling and the, 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 and the importance of taking the time to tell a story. That is what I love about Sarah Waters' writing is that it doesn't, obviously they have great plots and they've got, you know, there's a real page turning element to it. But if you really sit down and read Sarah's writing, you know, analyze it, I think you will see that she's allowed that space. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of courage again, you know, it says, okay, sit with me, see how it feels. You know, I, I think those are my, those would people would be people who I, inspired me, and then you know I've really turned to some you know my sort of women on a pedestal. I would I was I made a little list and I thought interesting. They're all older: Maya Angelou, Margaret Atwood, Adrian Rich, Marilyn Robinson, Toni Morrison. Do you know, I I do feel I want to look to my older wise women. Yes. <laughs> Our shells will be back in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
Welcome back to Our Shelves. Welcome back, where I'm talking with Lenny Goodings about books, feminist culture, and the women that she's admired over the years. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about um, the women that you've sort of put on a pedestal, as you described it, and they're all writers. Is that um, Are there people outside of the writing world that you would also put in that group, or is it just the nature of, the, of your career that's meant that writers are the women that you will always look towards? Hmm, interesting. It was writers who came to my mind. The second I read that that uh, a question about who do, who inspires me, it is always it is writers. I would say, yeah. it is writers. But I think all of the writers that I admire step outside of their art. You know, Margaret Atwood is I would call her a great. You know, she's a good citizen writer, as it were. You know, she's a person who talked about uh, climate change long before people started talking about that. Adrienne Rich was very brave. She was really in the forefront. I think of feminist thinking, and she, you know, she's much admired by Auden who, as a poet. And then he, and until he decided, she went off really and got all feminist. He said, "Too bad about the feminism." Um, you know, she's she's a person who was again brave and put herself right out there. I thought that was that's really important. The other thing I think about the women I admire is that they understand that they stand on other people's shoulders. I think that's kind of I find that really important and I feel like um I was I loved Helen Lewis's recent book called Difficult Women and one mm-hmm. of the reasons the thing I really loved about that book I would wouldn't I as an older woman was that I thought she was properly um crediting and respectful of women who had gone before her you know and I think that's a, a really important part of feminism is not to sort of or part of life, frankly, um, but not to diss the women who have gone before and feel like, you know, everyone's reinventing things each time. And, you know, one of the important things about Virago was actually, it's Carmen Killa who said it, Virago said that she felt very strongly she didn't want women in the future to suddenly discover their history in books and think, shit, you know, here it is. Why didn't we know about this? You know, and there's something like the Virago modern classics, for example, have really sort of given a tradition of female, uh, female literary tradition and given people, given women their past, their past literary heritage. I think that's very important. And that's what I like about, you know, my heroes who understand that they themselves are standing on other people's shoulders. Maya Angelou talked about that an awful lot. You know, she used to always talk about um, we're here because someone else has paid our way, she used to say like that. You know, which is particular, obviously, because she was talking about slave narratives. But even still, uh, it's not just her. I think you know, you have to, if you you understand again. It's back to sort of narrative, isn't it? You understand where you fit in the narrative. Yes, and I think there can be a tendency to try and sort of make new and sweep away what's gone before, mm. and in certain quarters, for people to think that they're reinventing the wheel every time with a new uh, generation comes along and wants to do things differently. But that sort of sense of importance, um, and I think you're really, uh, really right to bring up the Varago Modern Classics as a list that has been incredibly significant in terms of so many women, myself included, recognising what our literary history is and the women who've come before us and who have made um, the path that we've then trod afterwards slightly smoother, perhaps. And obviously, they are so beloved by so many people. They must have been a really interesting part of your work over the years at Virago. They were, I mean, when we first started publishing the Virago Morning Classics, it was um, before I got to Virago. And my first job at Virago was doing publicity. 
And um, one of the things, of course, one relies on with publicity is live authors. <laughs> and most, <laughs> most of these authors were dead. Uh, but uh, when I first started, we, we had Storm Jameson was alive, Rosamond Lehman, Rebecca West, Antonia White. I love the story in your book where you talk about Rosamond Lehman coming in a car, picking you up en route to a literary festival, or and you're living in Stoke Newington at the time, and she says something like, oh, this is Bohemia, is it? <laughs> I know. It was, um, yeah, I was so embarrassed, I must say. It, I was living in a almost, well, it was almost a squat, really, and it really was a mess. And uh, I mean, that was fine. It was really good for me, that's for sure, and it fit all my politics. But when the... Um, this fabulous card drew up with Rosamond in it, and we were heading off to Granada Television to do an interview. Just show you another world, doesn't it? Where Granada TV was about to do an hour um, program on Rosamond Lehman. But anyway, amazing. I know. So um, I came out of the sort of dashed down the stairs and hopped into the car, and she looked around very appreciatively, actually. So how old was she? Was in her late eighties, probably by then. And uh, she had had a really interesting artistic bohemian life. And she looked out the window and said, is this bohemia? (laughs) Okay, fine. We'll dress it up however you like. That's for sure. No, she was great. And um, Molly Keane was also so much fun, really wicked. Oh, my God. And, you know, looked like a sweet little old lady. And then I remember uh, we were eating chocolates or something and we said, oh, would you like one? And she said, oh, they look like turds, don't they? <laughs> you know, the, oh, right. OK, we're dealing with, <laughs> you know, I mean, I love her book, don't you? The Good Behavior, where it begins with the, the murder of a mother with rabbit yeah. moose, rabbit moose, murdered, murdered by moose. Very good. Um, but yes, no, it was tremendously exciting. I mean, that I'm just talking about the, the writers who were still alive, but Again, it was about the literary heritage, actually, and people were shocked. I mean, particularly with the Americans. So there was people like Willa Cather and Edith Wharton, Kay Boyle. Um, there was, in this country, was no understanding of how important those writers are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Virago put them back on the map, actually. Um, the other other area, Barbara Pym. Um, recently, we've had, well, not that recently, but a little while ago, we had Daphne du Maurier. And I thought that was very interesting because Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, obviously, has never been out of print since it was first published. But it had been sort of downgraded. It had become a sort of trashy romance sort of novel. And when we put it in the classics, you know, she what we said was, you know, she's established her correct place. She is a Virago modern classic writer. You know, she's a proper writer. And that's the, the series does a combination of things. It does, it sort of, it tells you again who these pe- important people are. It makes them important. But it also gives a, a, a thread, you know, it shows a line of writing, actually. And, um, yeah, when we first started publishing, we, they, I mean, they came thick and fast. Carmen, all her friends and um, other writers would write in all the time and tell you which book to, be, to publish. It was a really collaborative series and has remained so, too. Mm. Yeah, I've read wonderful things about um, you and other people talking at the time about going to the London Library and combing their shelves to find copies of these books, um, and then you know bringing them back into print. Um, yeah, that was Carmen. Yeah, Carmen. I I didn't actually choose the books, Carmen. But Carmen used to talk about just walking along the London Library and you know with her her finger trying to pick out spines that looked interesting. And uh, yeah, it was it was a great treasure trove. And people now say, oh, maybe you probably got to the bottom of the barrel and. Um, but I don't think that's true, actually. I think there's sort of, you know, Donna Coonan, who's now the Virago Modern Classics director, 
Um, she's looking more to the 60s. You know, we've got Beryl Bainbridge back in that series, for example, um, Patricia Highsmith. You know, I, I think it's a very, it's a rich seam. It, it definitely has not um, dried up at all. Well, like you were saying, there's no, um, there's no sort of, a, there's no typical Virago modern classic author. They come from such a wide, uh, such a wide variety of life, and writing so many different sorts of books as well that you can always expect to be excited by something mm. new you find on that. And Donna's brought in some wonderful um, American writers recently. I think Gail Jones, Corregidora, and, mm. and her other novels. So I think it's a it's an imprint that I always look to for exciting kind of rediscovered writers as well as the old classics that we might think of you know yes and also it does reflect its time too because Anne Petrie for example um, the street Mm. a a novel that Donna has just recently reissued we published that years ago and nobody was interested so yeah the the world has changed and now it's now people really want to know about um, black American writers it's wonderful that they're being recognised, but it seems rather sad to find that actually, yes, they're they're an old an older version of a Ravgo modern classic that people still aren't quite so aware of. Um, I mean, with that kind of backlist at your fingertips, not to mention all the wonderful new books that you've published over the years, when it comes to recommending books to friends, is there a book that you would go back to again and again and keep foisting onto people? Does this change over time? Um, Are you always recommending the latest thing that you've read or working on? Or do you have an old classic that you will always want people to read? Well, I try and read even books that are not published by Virago. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Such Um, wide readership. (laughs) So the book I'm loving right now, or the books I'm loving right now, are by Rebecca Solnit. Mm. And the one I'm reading right now is A Field Guide to Getting Lost. Right. I love that. And I've just got her new book on, it's not a new book, an old book on walking. Um, I feel like what I want right now, both in lockdown and in terms of the, the politics, that are stirring our streets is I feel like I want some deep thinkers. I feel like I want to be fed and people like Rebecca Solnit, Toni Morrison, and my own Sarah Waters and Sarah Dunant. I feel like, you know, they, they, um, yeah, they nourish me. My feeling about books is that I like to eat them <laughs> as it were. <laughs> when I realize I always use the word nourish and I suddenly thought, yeah, I guess what I'm really doing is eating books consuming them and do you like to recommend the books that you're reading at a at, at the moment so you know for example now if a friend said to you what would you what should I read next Lenny would you say you know Rebecca Solnit's the person who should speak to you at this moment or would you go back to something else I know I would definitely recommend her right now and Olivia Lang is another writer who I really admire yeah. um because I think they're doing the, the other thing that Rebecca Solnit and Olivia Lang are doing is they're playing with a form I mean, I know, you know, you could say it's an essay form in some ways, too. But I really do like writers who try and, you know, try and do something new um, with the form. The other book I'm reading right now, which reminds me of Sarah Waters, is uh, House in Paris by Elizabeth Bowen. A classic. Oh, my God. I love it. I am drowning in it. It's so beautiful. Yeah, that's a lovely book. I haven't read that for a long time, but you're reminding me that I should go back and read it again. Tessa Hadley wrote one of her recent books, The Past, that's very much based on the house in Paris, not in terms of content, but mm. she uses the structure, the past, um, sorry, present, past, 
present, sort of three-part structure for it. Yes. Um, and it's a wonderful way of telling a story and sort of opening it up in a different manner. I mean, I'm interested in, in form as well as, you know, the words. Have you always been as interested in uh, pushing the form of writing? I mean, is this something that's come to you more recently uh, as you've recognised that these are authors that you're being drawn to? Or is it something that you've always looked for in the people you read and possibly publish? I've, I think I've always been interested in that, actually. I think um, one of the things I did at university, I studied English, but I also studied film and film studies. And um, it was a time of a lot of experimental films. And it was a, a lot of them by a Canadian named Michael Snow, Michael Brackage. Um, it, they were really pushing out the form of understanding narrative and then kind of fracturing narrative. And I found it, oh my God, I found it absolutely um, scales falling from the eyes because I had only ever read, you know, straightforward narrative or seen films that were, you know, beginning, middle, end. And this, this, yeah, different ways of telling a story was very, um, it really stirred me, I have to say. So I feel like I've always had that. But I don't think you can do it at the expense of the story. I think you have to be careful. I think, you know, things can go too experimental and then it's just, it's just fragments. Style over substance. Yeah, it can be a problem. And there are certain people who that tends to happen to but those who manage to marry the two together when it becomes absolutely integral to the book in question I read a book recently Carmen Maria Manchego's In the Dream House which is a memoir about an abusive relationship that she had with another woman and the form is incredibly fragmented and uh, and it works so well with the subject matter um, and the sort of trauma that she suffered and I think it couldn't have really been written any other way so it matches um, very elegantly, but it's not always the case, obviously. Uh, moving from the sort of written word to something more visual, I want to ask you if there's a particular photograph that you treasure. Well, I come from a very large family. I'm the oldest of five. <laughs> and um, so, of course, my house is littered with family photos. And one of the one I, I keep, it's very precious to me, is uh, one of my nephews got married. And um, we just we lined up all the family and just the gooding side of the family was about 40 people in one great long line and uh, i know and and i treasure that and there's been lots of babies born since then so that's really important to me but actually i have this very funny picture of a wild dog and he's chasing his tail and it's taken by a an italian photographer named fernando schiana and underneath this this uh, photograph, he'd written something, which is curiosity is itself a form of adventure. And I, that I really treasure. I love, I mean, I like the craziness of this mad dog chasing its tail, but what I like is the idea that you can have your, you know, you don't have to travel for adventure. Your adventure can be seeking something in self or just, or obviously it can be outside too, but that curiosity is the motivator. I like that. Mm, that's lovely. It's also interesting, I think, that you've chosen a photograph that has a caption underneath it. So not Sorry. just the visual, you've gone back to words again, <laughs> yeah. where you're safest. <laughs> um, and finally, Lenny, I would like to ask you, what is on your bedside table at the moment? I'm reading Marilyn Robinson's home because we are publishing her book 
a new novel of hers at the end of this year called Jack, which completes the Gilead trilogy, uh, quartet. It was a trilogy, it's now quartet. And possibly it doesn't complete it, but anyway, it's, we think it's the completion, Jack. And so it's made me want to go back and reread Marilyn Robinson. So that's there. I'm also reading um, a new Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Solnit, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. And I'm reading Elizabeth Bowen, A House in Paris, which I just love. I'm so sinking into the language. I think it's beautiful. And I'm reading um, Flight by Olga Tukerchuk, who, and I read her earlier novel called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. And uh, I think she's pretty fabulous. Do you have a great towering uh, pile of books that you want to get to on your bedside table as well? Or are you quite disciplined and only keep the books that you're currently reading next to you? I am totally lacking in discipline. And I mean, probably in most things, but especially in piles of books. No, no. I I mean, to to be thinking about this um, podcast, I had to walk all around the house and I found books on the coffee table, some on the the floor, on the bed, all All kinds of stuff. No, it's... um, yeah, I like to be surrounded by books, so it's fine. But it doesn't look a bit messy. <laughs> well, I won't ask you to list everything that's on the bedside table. We'll leave it with those recommendations. Um, thank you so much, Lenny. This has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you very much for coming and joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Lenny Goodings. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.